Exploremore presents a reading from Strangers Like Angels with a devil or two to boot by Alec and Jan Foreman. and I would like to say thank you for listening to our podcast. If you have any questions, do please write to alecjan at gmail.com and do write podcast in the subject line. Thank you. Chapter 10, Family Heartbreak, 14th to the 23rd of March, 1977, Niger, Nigeria. On a sandy hill by a tree plantation north of Danbata, Nigeria, Wednesday the 23rd of March 1977. Dear Mum, Dad, David and Paul. Well, we crossed the Sahara safely and the Land Rover behaved well. It's amazing how many people are driving through Africa, the majority being on private trips. British, Australian, Swiss, American, French, German, Austrian and so on. There's a sense of instant companionship. Everyone's keen to hear how the other's vehicles are going, what the approaching track is like, and of any potential problems. People travelling north, south, east, west, all on various time schedules in all sorts of vehicles, from cars to trucks. One couple was travelling with their young children, and another couple even had an Alsatian dog in their red Citroen 2CV car. Our trip is going very well and we're really enjoying the motoring experience. Alec drives cross-country, while I'm chief navigator, making good use of the compass, maps and binoculars. Journeying over a thousand miles through the desert has provided a continuous change in scenery and a variety of tracks. The corrugations shake you to bits, whilst the soft sand grips hard on the tyres. The dust and sand seeps in everywhere, and at times it's been quite cloudy inside the Land Rover. At the end of each day, we shook the cushions and brushed away the surface sand, but in the campsites at Tamanrasset and Agadez, we had a major clean-up of the Land Rover and ourselves. The wooden roof box you made, Dad, is amazingly dustproof. We have spent many hours wandering through the markets, trying to guess what foods they're selling. Millet is part of the staple diet in Niger. Earlier today in Zinda Market, there were many insects that looked like locusts, although very dead and dried, ready for the cooking pot. Coming south in Algeria, the houses were built from mud, but on reaching Agadez in Niger, there were settlements of round grass huts that looked like giant beehives. Since leaving Agadez, the Tuareg people are lessening while the black Africans are increasing, and the women's dress in particular is becoming more colourful. We are still in desert terrain, but the vegetation, shrubs and trees are on the increase. We have seen beautiful, colourful birds, especially in Agadez campsite, where they hopped around the Land Rover. A burrow nearby was the home of a family of rats, but they didn't bother us as they kept their distance. The variety of insect life is becoming greater in size and abundance, and we'll soon need to use our mosquito net at night. Our journey from Algiers has taken us straight south. Lagourt, Gardia, El Galia, Insala, Tamamrasset, Ingerzum, Teguida and Tesum, 
Arceus, Agadez, Tenort, Zinda. And our next major stop will be in Kano tomorrow, where we hope to find some letters from you. We're really pleased we brought all the dried food with us, as there is little to buy apart from a few vegetables, bread and expensive tinned foods. Today we were a little extravagant and bought some fresh fruit as a treat. It cost one pound for seven local fruits, including two small mangoes. Do hope everyone at home is okay. Practically every day we mention one of you, wondering where Dad has us plotted on the map, where David's going on holiday this year, what Paul is up to, and whether you, Mum, are you still going to floral art classes? How is Cousin Jenny doing with her pregnancy? No doubt Auntie Barbara has been out buying baby clothes. Well, Alex's writing to his folks too, and we've got the fan on, cooling us. It's sticky and hot with the temperature over 100 degrees Fahrenheit today. So that's all for now. Fondest love from Alec and Janice. North of Dambata, Nigeria. Wednesday, 23rd of March, 1977. Dear Mum, Dad, Margaret, Tony and Janet. Well, we've crossed the first major obstacle of our journey, the Sahara Desert. A tremendous experience in every way. One of the most frightening things about it is seeing at regular intervals the abandoned vehicles of the ones that didn't make it. Although observing some of the vehicles people set out in, it's hardly surprising they break down. People are proving every day it can be done in a car, but we're glad we have a Land Rover, which at least is built for the job. Approaching Taman Rasset, the terrain was mountainous, most of which we drove through and around across sandy plains. In the Hogger Mountains near Taman Rasset, we saw several beautiful white eagles with yellow flashes and brown wingtips. To see them soaring through the air, hardly ever flapping their wings, but using the air currents of the mountains, was a wonderful sight. We also saw a large flock of storks north of Taman Rasset. Further south in Niger, there were new birds sighted every day, some brightly coloured, particularly all shades of blue. In the campsite at Agadez, I was sure I'd seen many similar birds before in your Avery Dad. One in particular was a mainly brown, with a red head and neck. I have taken a photo for identification on return. Spotted our first vultures today, a real evil-looking variety. North of Agadez, we almost ran over three desert antelopes as they flashed in front of us at about 40 miles per hour. Some of the most interesting life we have seen is around the water wells. There you can find gathered up to a 100 camels, 500 assorted goats and sheep, and 100 cows with the longest horns you've ever seen. Hauling the water up in skin buckets on the end of long ropes are pairs of donkeys that are beaten unmercifully by little girls, although the donkeys are oblivious to it. At the wellhead, the men carry the skins of water to troughs, and the waiting herds and flocks come forward in turn to drink. How they know which ones had or hadn't drunk, I really don't know. Another incident worth a mention happened south of Ingazam near the Algeria-Niger border. 
the Tuareg came galloping on his camel across the terrain as we drove past his herd of fifty or so camels. We stopped as he rode up to us, pulled to a halt and couched his steed, which snarled and grunted as he did so. He dismounted, and after fumbling about with his tasseled leather saddlebag, he came to my window and passed through a brass bowl. The bowl had a liberal coating of sand in the bottom, into which he poured from a goatskin bag a pint of camel's milk and insisted we drink. Well, what do you do but drink? Sand and all. He then asked by sign language if we had any food for him. First thing we thought of was a packet of ginger biscuits. After he'd fought his way through Jan's several plastic bags, the packet was sealed in, he pulled out his prize. The sheer delight on his face was a sight to be seen as he ravenously crunched and swallowed one spicy biscuit after another. He asked for tea and we gave him a dozen tea bags. On requesting water, he held out his bucket, made from a truck tyre and inner tube, and I poured in half a gallon of eau de vie, until he forbade me from giving him any more. As we said goodbye and went to drive off, his face was full of anguish, and he frantically waved his arms about, then dug his hands into the sand. He kept saying a word we didn't catch at first, but then we realised he was saying sable, sable, which means sand, sand. Seeing a local truck way in the distance that was going in a slightly different direction, the Tuareg directed us to follow. Later in Agadez, a fellow overlander told us that he had taken the track that our Tuareg friend had warned us not to go on. This guy's vehicle had finished up in deep, deep sand and he was forced to backtrack 15 miles to find the correct route, which is no joke at 10 miles to the gallon when every drop of fuel is vital. Our chance desert encounter that day was indeed fortuitous. Tomorrow we drive into Carno and hope to pick up our letters from home. Could write reams more of our adventures, but must finish for now. Love from Alec and Jan. Carno, Nigeria, 24th of March, 1977. Dear Mum, We arrived in Carno yesterday and found your letters, number 2, 3, 4, 5, seven and eight at the post office. As you can imagine, I was shocked to hear of cousin Michael's death. All of yesterday I was very upset and thought a great deal about the family. When there is so much wickedness in the world, it seems so cruel that those who strive to be good people should suffer so. One of the photos here in my album has Michael standing with David and Paul. Looking at it now, it's hard to believe that we'll never see his smiling face again. Thanks, Mum, for writing and sharing all about the funeral service. It must be a great comfort to Uncle George, Auntie Eileen and Anne that many people have been so kind. I've written a letter to let them know that although we are far away, Alec and I are thinking of them. Jenny's baby will soon arrive, which will soften the sadness within the family. You're obviously on good terms with everyone now. Silly, senseless thoughts about Alec and I will have surely disappeared when it's printed on everyone's mind so vividly that life is too precious 
and everyone should enjoy themselves as much as possible and be helpful and kind to one another. Well, one could talk and talk, but I must finish now, as we'll soon be leaving for Joss. Love to you all, Alec and Janice. Alec, the letters are finished and ready to go. Shall we return to the post office? We had just finished eating lunch, having found a campsite near to the Central Hotel in Carno. The campsite, well, if you can call it that, was basically a small piece of wasteland between the railway track and a brick-making business. The only other camper was Tim, a South African who'd ridden his motorbike all the way north from his homeland. He was very clued up and gave us many tips about the route ahead. It was too far to walk to the post office, so we had to go in the Land Rover. We found it bewildering to be in a city after the solitude and vast expanse of the desert. Thousands of people were milling around on the streets and in the open markets. There were traffic jams to contend with. Hundreds of trucks and minibuses transporting passengers, animals and merchandise. Noise, chaos, uproar and the stink of petrol fumes. Pandemonium. We quickly took care of our postal errand and returned to the campsite. After supper, Alec and I visited the Central Hotel for a beer in the air-conditioned bar. I can't get my head around the fact that Michael is really dead, I shared with Alec. How did your mum say it happened? Apparently, he was out working with men from the waterboard. They had two vehicles. When they pulled into a lay-by, Michael got out and went to speak to the driver in the second vehicle. He was leaning with his crossed forearms, resting on the edge of the lowered window at the driver's door, relaxed and chatting. Next thing, a car came racing along the road, clipped and flipped his body into the air and left him to his fate. Did they catch the swine? responded Alec. I don't know. Mum didn't say. All the family must be devastated. They'll all feel the loss. I feel bad enough and I've not lived in Brentwood for years. As you wrote in that quick note to your mum, it makes the family's reaction to what we did really pointless and sad said Alec. In 1974, after we had been dating for two years, we decided to get married. Alec had just finished his first six months away in Antarctica and was going to be living for the summer with my family. He was working at the British Antarctic Survey Office in London, a commuter train ride away. It would be easier on the family if we could share my tiny bedroom rather than Alec sleeping in the lounge. So, Mum, do you think you could be free on Friday the 5th of April? I asked as she was frying eggs for breakfast. Well, I don't know. Friday is the day I pick up my pay packet at work. She was a dinner lady at the local junior school, just in for two hours a day, supervising the children in the playground. Well, not even to come to our wedding? Janice! she exclaimed, almost dropping the fried eggs as she served them onto a brown oval plate. Well, much discussion followed. Why the rush? Marrying at the council offices? Don't you want a big wedding in church? Why not wait a month and we can organise it all properly? My dad didn't say too much, but I imagine there was a lot said behind closed doors. Dad liked a quiet life, but usually went along with mum's gaiety and love of people and the extended family. At Christmas time, there was always the big family party on Boxing Day when we all squeezed into one of the family homes, 
playing the flower game, the chocolate game and doing charades. My grandad Gump had been the life and soul of the party, leading the songs and joining in the games. After he and Nan died, my Uncle George, Michael's dad, took over as Master of Ceremonies. He did a great job of telling the stagecoach story when we were each given various parts of the coach and horses to represent and act out. Everyone acted as Indians by standing up and doing a war cry and jig on the spot. Not forgetting Uncle George leading I Am The Music Man when everyone in twos and threes mimed different instruments. By the end of the song we had produced a lively band. The bagpipes were always the best. So with being such a close family, Mum was worried how the family would react about not being invited to the wedding. It'll be all right, Mum, I explained. We just want a simple wedding now. Just you, Dad, David and Paul and Alex's immediate family. We're married at the registry office. I've already made my outfit. You know, the long purple and gold plaid dress with the deep purple velvet jacket that I've been sewing. We'll have a reception at the pub next door and then we'll go away on honeymoon for the weekend. If we're still going to be living at home, we don't want a big fuss. We can do something with the family just before we go on our Land Rover trip, when we'll really be starting married life together. Besides, weddings cost a lot of money, and we want to put all our funds into our trip. But we can work out the money, as Dad's been putting some aside. Won't you regret not marrying in white? Mum cautioned me even though she knew that white for me would be a lie. Can you remember the look on your aunt's and uncle's faces on the night before our wedding? Alec recalled. Yes, at each of their homes, when we visited that evening, they were thrilled to hear we had become engaged that day and admired my beautiful sapphire and diamond ring. Out came the sherry and they raised their glasses in congratulations. But then we dropped the bombshell that we'd be married the next day at the registry office and the ceremony was only for our immediate family. Alec continued. Yes, and even when we explained why they didn't get it, Mum tried to cushion their disappointment by organising a gathering for everyone at home on our wedding day, but of course we'd already left for our honeymoon. We had become the black sheep of the extended family that wedding weekend and made my mum very sad. In a sombre mood, we left the hotel and walked back to the Land Rover. Total distance driven, 6,140 miles. You've been listening to a reading from Strangers Like Angels with a devil or two to boot by Alec and Jan Foreman, presented by Explore More. Explore More is an adventure lifestyle brand founded on the 1977 travel stories of Alec and Jan Foreman with a passion to inspire people to explore more of the world, engage with others and embrace global cultures to ensure a greater understanding for each other and enable positive progression. Discover great products and more on exploremore.com. That's E-X-P-L-M-O-R-E dot com.